Welcome to the LeanZone.com podcast, where we discuss construction contracts, liens, and bonds. And now, our host, Alex Barthet. So we're going to talk about the, uh, your contract, your construction contract. Uh, we're going to go over some very specific contract issues that are common to every construction contract. Then we're going to talk about some very specific contract provisions, uh, particularly pay when paid, no damage for delay, and then we're going to talk about lien waivers. We're going to spend quite a bit of time about uh, talking about lien waivers so that you understand how to, uh, what are the best ways to exchange uh, a waiver for a check, whether you're either giving the check or uh, giving the waiver. Then we'll talk about some boilerplate language, general language that exists in almost every construction contract, or every contract for that matter, so you have an understanding of what those provisions mean. And we're going to talk about lien and bond rights, how to assert a lien, what are the time frames, what are the rules, uh, how to assert a payment bond claim, uh, and then we'll talk about some of the common traps that I see in my practice on a routine basis uh, and how to avoid about the issues that are common to uh, most every construction contract. Uh, the first is scope, that is what is it that you are going to provide in your contract? How are you going to define what you're going to provide? Uh, what's more important than describing what you will provide, it's important to articulate what you know you will not provide. So if you, there are things that you know that you're not going to do that are not included in the price, you should have some exclusions because those are the things that usually cause the dispute. So if you know you don't do something, you should list them as exclusions. The price obviously goes hand in hand. Payment terms, we're going to talk a lot about uh, how and when you should be paid, particularly dealing with the pay when paid clause. Uh, when are you going to start the work, whether that's a triggering event or a specific date, when you're going to finish the work. And then we're going to talk now about some very specific contract provisions. Pay when paid, no damage for delay, and lien waivers. So let me explain what a pay when paid provision is. I'm, I'm assuming you have all seen them in one form or another in your construction contracts, whether that's because you are forced to sign a contract with a pay when paid, or when you are rendering uh, or hiring other people to work for you, you want to pass that risk down to them, so you want a pay when paid provision in your contract. Um, pay when paid provisions are contract provisions that exist they're valid and enforceable in the state of Florida. Um, and what in essence it says is that the payment risk to you is contingent on someone else above you getting paid. So if we take an example of you being a subcontractor, if the owner doesn't pay the contractor, the contractor doesn't have to pay you. You could do everything right. You will have no mistakes during the course of the project. But if the owner doesn't pay the contractor, the contractor legally is not obligated to pay you. Well, this is a big problem if you are uh, a subcontractor or a sub-subcontractor on a project. If you are the general contractor or if you are a sub and you hire sub-subs, you would love to pass that risk of non-payment on to your, to your lower tier providers. And by doing so, uh, you, you can minimize the liability that you may suffer in case something goes wrong on the job. Again, having nothing to do with, with you doing something wrong on the job. 
So a pay when paid provision can only be construed in one of two ways. Um, one, either the court's going to look at that provision that's, that's in the contract and the court's going to say it's valid and it's enforceable because they understand that it was intended to shift the risk. Or the, uh, the court's going to look at it and say, no, I don't understand exactly what this means, so therefore we're not going to shift the risk. In essence, uh, and the courts have come up with a very specific rule, and they said, you know what, we, you need to use certain magic language, certain very, speci very specific words in order to shift the risk. And those words are uh, contingent upon or conditioned precedent. So the same language where that, those words exist, the courts are going to find that that provision is a valid and enforceable pay when paid provision. So what does this mean for you if you are negotiating contracts where someone is looking to pass that risk on to you? Well, one, you need to check to see if that magic language is in there. Because if it is, more likely than not, the pay when paid provision is going to be valid and enforceable. If you are hiring somebody and you want to pass that risk on to them, it's important that your pay when paid provision is valid and enforceable. And the way to do that, though, is to use a paragraph where that magic language exists. Now, I've been doing this a while. Almost every contract that comes across my desk has the magic language. The things I'm telling you now, this is old law. This is law that's been on the books for 30 plus years. So it has migrated into all of the contracts that we see on a regular basis. It's much more common that we see it than, when, than we don't see it. So again, a lot of this depends on the perspective that you have, uh, that is whether you're looking to pass the risk of non-payment on to somebody else or whether you want to make sure that that risk doesn't land on you in case payment doesn't happen from the owner. So uh, in your negotiations, uh, de again, depending on your, per your perspective, you may want to try to strike that provision. I will tell you that it's pretty rare that a subcontractor, if you're a sub-sub, or a contractor, if you're a, a, a subcontractor, will strike that provision because they understand the significance of that magic language. Um, what we tell many clients that are lower tier trades uh, is we, we tell them, you know what, if you can't strike that provision, try to include a stop work order uh, or provision in your contract, meaning, okay, I understand that I need to absorb this risk of non-payment, but if I don't get paid in 30 days, I have the right to stop work. Um, at least that limits your exposure. So if there's a problem on the job, you don't have to keep working even though you're not getting paid because that would be a double whammy, right? You're not getting paid and you keep spending money in order to keep the project going. Check to see if uh, what language exists in the prime contract and I'll explain why that's important. Uh, if the job is bonded, you may have a right to make a claim against a bond even though you have a pay when paid provision. Uh, and if you have lien rights, by asserting those lien rights, um, you may be able to recover. So let me explain what is called the incorporation ambiguity. So let me paint a picture for you that exists in most construction scenarios. 
owner signs a contract with a general contractor who then signs contracts with subcontractors. If um, the owner typically does not want to make a final payment to the contractor until the contractor has shown that they've paid all their bills. This is a standard provision that exists in most AIA contracts. Most municipal contracts have the same thing. So when the last payment is made, the owner typically wants everything to be clean. Um, the, the subcontract, however, says that the contractor is not going to pay the subcontractor until the owner has paid the contractor. So now we have a problem, right? The owner is not going to pay the contractor until all the bills have been paid, but the contractor is not going to pay the subs until the owner makes the payment first. So we have this uh, situation in which everyone's waiting for someone else to write the check. Um, this issue went up all the way to the Supreme Court of Florida many, many years ago, and the Supreme Court said, quite simply, general contractors uh, have the ability to make the payment in advance, irrespective of what the documents say. Subcontractors do not and, and should be protected. So as a policy decision, when this situation occurs, the subcontractor wins, the general contractor loses. So let me explain how this would work for you. If you are a subcontractor on a project and you make it to the end and you have a pay when paid provision in your contract, if the prime contract is incorporated into your contract, which it almost always is, and that, con that prime contract says that the owner doesn't have to pay the contractor until the contractor's paid all their bills and, and provided evidence of that, automatically it invalidates your pay when paid provision. As a prime contractor, you need to be aware of this because now you've worked very hard making sure that all your subcontracts have pay when paid language in it, only to find out that the language that exists in the prime contract has now undercut all the work you've done to create valid and enforceable pay when paid provisions. So as a prime contractor, the question is, what do you do to make sure that your pay when paid provision is enforceable uh, with your subs? And the answer is quite simple. To the extent you sign and have the ability to negotiate with the, the owner, you want to make sure that the last payment uh, that the owner gives you is still rolling like every other payment before, which is to say the owner pays you the final payment and then you have a period of time after that to provide proof that you've paid all your bills. You don't want to move that last payment provision all the way up so that you have to prove that you've paid everyone in order to get the final payment. So adding a little bit of a delay in the final payment provision with the owner will enable you to keep your pay when paid provisions enforceable. So the next two things that you have to be aware of that impact your ability to have a valid and enforceable pay when paid provision are whether there's a bond on the job and whether you have lien rights. If the job is bonded, then as a, a surety on most private jobs, and as a surety on most, on, on every public job, that surety bond is not entitled to assert the pay when paid defense. So you may sign, if we take an example of, of, of a subcontractor, a subcontractor may sign a contract with a prime contractor, 
that subcontract has a pay when paid provision in it. The prime contract is incorporated into the subcontract, and that prime contract has taken care of the final payment provision so that the pay when paid provision in the subcontract is valid and enforceable. But the instant that general contractor posts a bond for the job, they have now created a workaround for the subcontractor to avoid the pay when paid provision. Uh, because the subcontractor can, can assert the fact that they haven't been paid to the surety, and the surety can't say, well, the owner hasn't paid the contractor. Because that's not a defense, that's not a legal defense that the surety can assert. So let me give you a specific example. When subcontractor sub clients come to us to help them get paid on bonded jobs, we will typically file a lawsuit against the payment bond surety, and that's it. So we will sue the surety, and we will not even bring an action against the prime contractor, mainly because we don't want to have to deal with the pay when paid defense that the uh, prime contractor could assert. So we take that completely off the table by just bringing a claim against the payment bond surety. Um, many times that is the only defense that exists on a job that has been completed. You know, sometimes there's issues about punch list, the work may have been delayed, there may be claims, but usually that, on most jobs, that's, that's the small stuff. The big issue is that the owner hasn't paid the contractor, so therefore the contractor doesn't want to pay the subs. If we can avoid that defense completely and just go right to the surety and say, well, you can't, you can't say that about paying my client. It streamlines everything. As a bonded contractor, you need to understand that your subcontractors have this ability to go right around you, right to the surety, meaning that, again, you've done now everything right to assert the pay when paid defense to your surety, uh, to your subcontractors, but unfortunately they can do an end run and, uh, and avoid the pay when paid defense. You won't be surprised. Um, the next thing you can do is assert a lien. If you have lien rights, the owner who owns the property and you will assert the lien against, they don't have the right to, to assert a pay when paid defense. So again, if you're a sub, you've done work on a private job, uh, you have lien rights, you can assert a lien, and you don't have to worry about the pay when paid defense. Let's talk about no damage for delay. Your business is not very different than mine in that time is money. If you bid a job and you expect it to take six months and it takes nine, if you didn't make any more money, it costs you more money to run that job because you have additional home office overhead, uh, overhead on the site, uh, additional insurance, your bonding capacity may have been tied up on that job so you couldn't use it on another job. So the fact that a job takes longer than you anticipate means that it costs you more money. You make less money. Um, so the question is how do you get paid for a job that takes longer than you anticipate uh, and, the, and the way to do that is you need to be able to overcome a no damage for delay clause because almost every contract that we see these days has a no damage for delay clause. And that, that clause is pretty simple. Just as the document, as the title of the clause suggests, what it says is you may be entitled to additional time 
but you are not entitled to additional money. Well, time is nice, but what you really want is time and money if a job runs long. So let's talk about how to overcome this provision, which probably exists in your contract. Uh, as Understand, as a general contractor, the owner typically will have a provision like this. Most municipal owners have provisions like this. There's a provision like this in the standard AIA contract. Again, owners don't want to have to pay for delays on the job. All they want to be able to do is uh, pay for or give time extensions in the worst case scenario. As a general contractor, when you hire subs, you'd like, you want a provision similar to this so that you don't have to uh, run the risk of having to pay subs for a job that went long, especially if you weren't the cause of the delay. So the first thing you need to understand is that these clauses are valid and enforceable in the state of Florida. Um, so these clauses exist, they're very prevalent, um, and generally speaking, courts will uphold them. Um, so what is the exception? The exception to the rule is that the willful, wanton, or grossly negligent acts of the party that you contract with uh, may overcome a no damage for delay clause. So let me give you a specific example uh, based on a case of how that works. Uh, there was a road contractor who was hired to build a road, make a bend, connect it to a bridge. Uh, the road contractor mobilizes, starts the work, realizes, wait a second, if we do everything with, that the plans require, we're not, this is not going to work. There's a problem. So they present the problem to the owner, a municipality, and the municipality presents it to their design team, and everyone agrees, yes, there is a problem. So the contractor demobilizes from the site uh, for many months, and then the plans get fixed, they remobilize, they finish the project. Owner gives the contractor a time extension covering uh, the entire period of the delay. Contractor says, thank you very much, but I need money. I need money because I couldn't get other jobs while we were waiting to fix this. I had to remobilize uh, on the job. Um, so therefore, the time is nice, but I need to be paid for the time that you all made this mistake. Uh, litigation ensued. The court eventually ruled that because the owner's architect and design team, that is an agent of the owner, didn't just make a small mistake, they made a mistake that really should have never been made. Um, it was a big mistake. It was an obvious mistake. And because of that, the court said, no, the no damage for delay clause is unenforceable. So in this example, the no damage for delay clause was unenforceable because the party that was trying to enforce it was the party that caused the problem. So if we take an example of a plumber who was um, delayed on a job, not by the contractor, but maybe by the framing subcontractor, that's going to be more difficult because the party that delayed the job doesn't have a contract with the plumber, in my example. That was the framer. The general contractor did everything right. Uh, it was someone else that caused the delay. So the question is, how do you deal with no damage for delay clauses? Uh, 
you could try to strike it from the contract. Again, I would tell you that that's not likely. Uh, you could try to add limitations to the provision. Most no damage for delay clauses are very, very broad. They include everything. Uh, the one I showed you is a one sentence, no damage for delay sentence. Uh, many times we see it as a paragraph or even half a page on really long contracts. Uh, so what you can do is you could say, you know what, we agree to the no damage for delay clause, but only as to these issues uh, so that you would start carving out possibilities of ways you can get money in addition to time. One of the things that you have to remember is that in addition to a no damage for delay clause that exists in most contracts, there exists other provisions on how to assert claims. Normally it has to be in writing, has to be within you know, sometimes 48, 72 hours, sometimes if you're lucky a week. Those provisions need to be complied with. So don't expect to get a, uh, don't expect to be able to as assert a claim for delay if you haven't complied with the other claim provisions that exist in the contract. So you need to submit it on time as required, if you need to send it via certified mail because that's what the contract says, that's what you have to do. If you have to provide backup, go ahead and do that. There's an old adage amongst construction lawyers, whoever brings more boxes of documents to their, client, to their lawyer's office when a claim is made is probably going to win the case. We tell clients all the time, take lots of pictures, um, write lots of emails. There's no reason that, you know, uh, Sometimes people think, well, is email a real notice? Does that count for anything in court? Absolutely. Uh, providing email notice is great. If the contract for certain notices requires something more stringent, you should do that. Uh, but there's no reason that uh, comments during meeting minutes, uh, in meeting minutes, uh, emails, sometimes we're forced to use text messages, but we'll take what we can get uh, if we have to support a client's position. Um, so make sure to document, document, document. And, all right, so let's talk about lien waivers. Uh, I have won many cases because of lien waivers. I have lost many cases because of lien waivers that my clients have signed. So the first thing you need to understand is that the statute, Chapter 713, which is the lien statute, has a very specific um, lien waiver form. The statute says, no one can make you sign a form other than these forms here. So the undersigned releases their lien rights through a specific date. The final payment waiver uh, is pretty much the same with one exception. It doesn't have a through date. Um, and you're probably thinking to yourself, well, if those are the only releases I have to sign, then why am I signing these releases that are like eight-point fonts, a whole paragraph, uh, they want all of this other information. And the reason is, is twofold. Um, one, you may have signed a contract, and that contract has exhibits, and those exhibits say these are the release forms you're going to use when you submit a payment request. So if you sign a contract that says those are the, that this form of release is the release you're going to use, well, guess what? That's the form of release you have to use. Um, the other exception is what's called the golden rule, which is he who has the gold makes the rules. So you want your check? Well, then this is the release you have to sign. 
and you can argue till you're blue in the face that the statute doesn't require that you sign a form other than that one. You don't have a contract that's required you to sign another form. And then what we hear from our clients is that the typical response is, yeah, yeah, that's great. Do you want your check? Because if you want your check, you need to sign this release. Um, so you need to understand how releases work so that you can understand how to deal with the problems that are associated with exchanging releases for checks. So the first thing you need to understand is what a conditional release is. So let me paint the picture for you. You provide a release. You do not get paid for that release uh, because the check never comes, uh, the check you get bounces. Uh, for whatever reason, you've given a release and you haven't gotten the money you were expecting for the release. What do you do? Well, our suggestion is that you use conditional language when you are exchanging a release for something other than a check on the spot. Many times you are asked to provide a release with your payment application package and you may not get a check for weeks, maybe months after that. Uh, you should use conditional language on your releases when you are exchanging a release and you are not getting paid right away. We advise clients that they can take language like this or similar to this, um, which says this release is conditioned upon payment of the consideration described above and is not effective until said amount is received in paid funds by the undersigned. Take that language or something similar to it and make a stamp. So for 10, 15 bucks online, you can get a stamp made, and then when you sign releases and you haven't gotten the check, you stamp the release, and now you've made a unconditional release conditional. Um, if you are a, an owner uh, or a general contractor, and when you get these packages of releases from your subtrades, uh, particularly sub-subcontractors or suppliers to your subcontractors, and you see that those releases are conditional, you should be concerned. And the reason you should be concerned is, think about the process, right? So you have a release from, let's say, the electrical supply house. You are the contractor. You get a conditional release from the electrical supply house. You get paid, you write a check to the electrician who then does not pay the electrical supply house. And you think, well, it's okay, I have a release. Well, your release is conditioned on the electrical supply house actually getting the check. So if they don't get the check, your release is no good. So if you are receiving releases in exchange for payment, you want to make sure that those that you are not actually giving money to uh, don't give you conditional releases because uh, if you, that happens, then you may not have a release that's any good. If you have that concern, you can issue joint checks. So in my example, if you were the contractor, you could issue a joint check to the electrician and the supply house because then you know that if the check is endorsed, then the condition on the conditional release is satisfied. You need to make sure that the amount of money that's specified in the release coincides to the amount of time 
that you're releasing. Sounds obvious. I had a client call me yesterday and they were asked to provide a release. That release was for a certain amount of money and a, through a certain amount of time. Well, the problem was is that the amount of money that they were going to be paid excluded a, several of the invoices that they were, uh, that were in that period of time. So if they signed the release uh, through that period of time, they would have released all of their rights through that period of time. Typically, it's the end of the month. And that release would have included these other invoices that they hadn't been paid for. Um, so they changed their release to not be a release through a certain amount of time, but only for specific invoices or for a specific amount of money. So in exchange for $10,000, they're releasing invoices one, two, three, and four. Um, they didn't put a date because the date was inherently problematic. They couldn't give a release for the amount of money they were getting um, without giving up more rights. Watch out for $10 releases that don't have another date. So if you are giving a release, meaning you are expecting a check, and in, ex in exchange for the check you are expecting, you are supposed to give a release, you should always try to put the amount of money of that check as the condition in the release. Meaning, if you're expecting a $10,000 check, the release should say, in exchange for $10,000. The reason that's important is because if you never get the $10,000, even if you don't have conditional language in the release, at least you can argue that you didn't get the money that was set forth in the release. The problem is that a lot of times the release says just $10. You may be expecting a $20,000 check, a $250,000 check, but all it says is $10. So if you're the one giving the release, you, you want to make sure that it has the amount of money you're actually expecting. Now the converse is true if, if you are the one giving the check. If you're giving the check, you'd like to have it only say $10 because then you always have the argument that irrespective of the money you gave, whether 8,000, 20,000, 50,000, that that was always enough money because the release wasn't conditioned on 50,000, it was just said $10 and other good and valuable consideration. Um, we had a client once who their procedure in exchange for giving releases and getting checks was, was pretty stringent. You would show up to their office, they would have a notary there, they would show you the check, they'd have the release, you would sign the release on the spot. That release actually had no through date. It was only the date that you signed it. It also said only $10. So for $10 with no through date, you'd go to the, the desk, you'd sign it, they'd notarize it, you'd get the check, they'd give you copies, everyone was happy. They had a job in Aventura during the bust, it went south, they, uh, they didn't get paid about $7 million from the developer. Um, many of their suppliers and subcontractors were owed lots of money. So litigation ensued. It just so happened that the party that built the prefabbed concrete garage, which was designed and built for this facility, which was sitting in a warehouse fully uh, manufactured, just waiting to be erected, they were, uh, um, they were owed about three and a half million dollars um, for this garage. But 
by the time they finished the last of their work, uh, or after they finished, I should say, after they finished the last of their work, they came to pick up the last checks actually that were issued on the job. So my client wrote a $182,000 check for a draw for months before. But by the time they came to pick it up, and the, and the fact that they were done at that point, no other work was done after they picked up this release, um, we took this release and we argued successfully that they released all of their rights through the date that they picked up the check because that was the only date on the release. There was no other through date. Uh, and uh, the court agreed. We were able to successfully defeat a $3.5 million claim based on this release that was executed by them. This episode is brought to you by CPVCFiresprinklerReport.com. With recent lawsuits alleging that CPVC fire sprinkler pipe is defective, contractors, subcontractors, and suppliers now have a place to get accurate and up-to-date information. Visit CPVCFiresprinklerReport.com to learn the latest and protect your company. So you have to understand that these releases have significant legal impact because by signing it, you're giving away your rights. Courts won't take uh, well the argument, well, I didn't understand what it said. Um, or, no, 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 I was expecting lots more money. You know, 182 was only for, pay, for the pay app for six months before. Courts typically say, wait, you're a business. They're a business. You sign sophisticated contracts. You do complicated work. Don't come to me and say, well, I didn't understand what this piece of paper meant, uh, courts don't usually grant that as an excuse for getting paid. RCOs and PCOs, uh, you know, as you uh, work through a project, usually the paperwork is trailing behind the actual work, right? So you may get an email that says, okay, we need you to do this, go ahead and price and proceed. Um, so you generate the document. By the time you even submit the document, you may have already done all the work associated with that change. Um, so you submit the, the, the paperwork. Um, the problem that you have, or the problem that could exist, is that when you do that, you may be signing a release that releases your rights to that work that hasn't fully matured into a fully executed change order, right? Because it's only a PCO or an RCO. This becomes even more problematic if you actually read the releases that you may be forced to sign. So when you read that release, that's eight point fonts, the big paragraph, it probably says something like, you agree that uh, in exchange for the above described payment, you're releasing your rights for any uh, contract work, delays, change orders, uh, uh, ticket work. It's a long laundry list of items. Uh, normally, during the course of the project, no one's ever looking at that paperwork. So it may be months, but then it eventually turns into a change order. You may eventually get paid. The problem is that when things don't go well and the lawyers get involved, the lawyers are going to now look at all these documents and create meaning based on what the document says. And because of that, now you've signed a release that said that you were releasing rights for change orders that haven't been fully executed. 
um, it's going to be hard to overcome that. So what we would suggest, and I understand it's sometimes complicated, is that if you have change orders that have not yet been fully executed, you create an exception to your release. So when you sign a release, sometimes it has a little spot for exceptions. Even if it doesn't, you can handwrite something in, and you would list those things that are exceptions, which would be all of the unexecuted change orders you have at that point. Now, I understand the instant you do anything to a release, the party you submit it to may say, no, we're not accepting this. And you have to make the business decision of how it is that you're going to deal with this problem. As long as my job is to explain the risks, uh, particularly the legal risks in doing something, you all have to make the decision for, for your business on what risks you're going to take and not take. So to the extent you can list exceptions to your release, uh, which would include unexecuted change orders, whether you call them RCOs or PCOs, that is the best way to protect yourself. And you would do that every month, and that list would always change, right? Because one month you may have RCO 35. Well, next month, RCO 35 may turn into CO 7. So therefore, it's no longer on the list because now it's officially part of your contract. So the next thing is uh, something that only happens to a small number of people, and that is whether or not you can rely on the person, uh, rely on the release based on the person that signs it. So if you have any concern that the person that gave you or signed the release doesn't have the authority to sign the release, what you can do is you can go to sunbiz.org, that's the Secretary of State, you sign, uh, and you can check to see whether that person has the authority because they're listed as an officer or director of the company. If they're not listed there, there's the possibility that they don't have the authority to sign the release. Um, again, this is a, uh, a very small problem, meaning it, it doesn't happen very often. Uh, but if you have the concern that you're getting a release from someone and, you, and you're uneasy about it, you can check to see whether or not they are an officer or director. If they're not, and you want them to be fully authorized to sign a release, you can ask for what's called a corporate resolution, which is a document signed by the board of directors of a company. Um, there's an equivalent for LLCs. And that board of directors would say, this person has the authority to sign releases. And they would give that to you. And now you know, officially, even though they're not an officer or director, they have the authority to sign that release. The, the next question is, is there a risk that the release that you are um, receiving, could it be forged? We had uh, a client who was an electrical supply house, owed about a million dollars on four jobs, um, came to us about four months uh, after the debt had started to accrue, and they said, Alex, we need your help. We're owed a million dollars on four jobs. Uh, go ahead and send letters to each of the owners and contractors. So we did that. Uh, and uniformly, they all wrote back to us and said, Alex, I don't know what you're talking about. Hear the releases from your client every month. So if you looked at the releases, you would notice that the signature of the notary and the person that signed it was identical. And what happened is that the, is that the electrical subcontractor just took the first release we ever gave, cut off the bottom, changed the date, and was forging our releases every month to the contractor. So the contractor and the owner were unaware of this problem. They were just getting releases. They thought everything was fine. We had no knowledge because um, we kept extending credit 
to the uh, electrician uh, who was using the materials, getting paid, and just not paying us. Um, so there's two cases in the state of Florida that deal with the situation. None are good for the lien or. And they say that when an owner or contractor has no reason to know that the uh, document was forged, they are entitled to rely on it. So the long, uh, the short story for my client is that we were out of luck. We had no lien rights. We had no right to make a claim against the bond um, because the owner and contractor had no reason to know that the lien waiver was forged. My client uh, was able to recover about $250,000 of the million dollars. That was the unpaid contract balance owed by the contractor to the electrician. Um, so uh, the other $750,000, unfortunately, was gone. It, it was not a, uh, it was not like this person was uh, buying yachts and Ferraris and real estate. Uh, they were funding what seemed to be a operation that was losing money. So there was no money to get. Um, so the advice to my client after the fact was don't wait so long to initiate collection efforts uh, because there's very little you can do to avoid that from happening except minimize the risk to you by staying on top of your accounts receivable. All right, so let's talk about some boilerplate language. This is, again, contract language that exists in every contract that you'll sign, whether it's to buy a car, uh, renovate your house, lease a copier. Um, so let's talk about a merger clause. So a merger clause is a contract clause that says anything that we talk about or write about before uh, or while we are signing this contract doesn't exist. The only thing that matters is that which exists in this contract that we're signing. So you may be negotiating back and forth. You may have terms in those emails, in the meetings. There may be draft versions of the contract. None of that matters. When your contract has a merger clause, the only thing that matters is what's in the contract. So when you sit down with the owner or the contractor and they say, don't worry, we're going to pay you, we're a team, we're going to get through this. Um, you know, even if we don't get paid, we don't get funded by the lender, we don't get funded by the owner, we're still going to pay you, don't worry about anything. None of that is ever going to see the light of day if you have a contract that has a merger clause. And a merger clause is very standard. It exists in almost every contract. And the reason is, is that when that contract provision exists, the court will not even entertain discussions about all the things that happened that led up to the execution of the contract. The court's going to limit themselves to reviewing the contract, and that's it. So the, the rule is, if you think it's important, it needs to be in the contract. If it's not in the contract, and it has a merger clause, you're going to be hard-pressed to argue that that provision uh, was part of the contract. Limitations of liability. You know, lots can go wrong during the course of a construction project. It would be nice to limit the liability you have uh, during the course of a construction project. One way to do that is to have a provision in your contract that limits your liability. We're going to talk about one specific um, provision in this much longer limitation of liability uh, paragraph and that is what are called consequential damages. 
Consequential damages are damages that flow from a breach of a contract, but are not directly related to the breach itself. Let me give you an example. We had a client who built a condo. Turned out, condo had uh, Chinese drywall top to bottom. That's a problem. Um, there are certain damages associated with having Chinese drywall in a project. The easy one is taking the Chinese drywall out, replacing it with good drywall, and fixing all of the other components in the building that were damaged because of the Chinese drywall. There are lots of other damages that flow from having Chinese drywall in a building that are not uh, those damages. Uh, the developer was unable to convert his construction loan to a permanent loan, therefore he had to pay more interest. The time it took to close on units extended the period of time that the developer was paying uh, on the loan. The sale price for units was less because people, even though it was remediated, didn't want to live in a building that even at any point in time in, uh, during its life had Chinese drywall. Could go on and on about all of these other damages that are indirectly related to having Chinese drywall in a, in a building. Those numbers are really, really big, even in comparison to the cost to re repair the building. Um, those would be considered consequential damages. If you have a contract that says that the parties agree to waive the right of consequential damages against each other, then those damages are not in play. My client, in that example, had a waiver of consequential damages. So while we were potentially liable for all of the direct costs, we were not liable for all of those indirect costs. Um, so the standard AIA contract uh, and most contracts usually have a waiver of consequential damages. In the AIA contract, they exchange waiving consequential damages and giving liquidated damages. That's the standard trade-off that the AIA contracts usually employ. So the parties agree to waive consequential damages, and in exchange, uh, the parties will now pay a certain amount of liquidated damages uh, as a result. Governing law and venue. Uh, if you are in a dispute uh, with another party that you sign a contract with, uh, you're going to have to s resolve that dispute unless you agree to arbitration in your agreement. You're going to have to resolve that dispute in some court of law. That court's going to have to apply uh, a certain body of law, state, federal, which state. Um, law is going to apply, and they're going to have to resolve that dispute somewhere. You can agree in your contract what law will apply and where that dispute will take place. This is an example of a uh, governing law and venue provision that says that the parties agree to uh, use Florida law and the venue is Miami-Dade County. The most unusual case I've had was a project in Exuma, Bahamas that was going to be litigated in Miami, federal court, and we were going to apply New York law. Um, perfectly legal, valid and enforceable, uh, made it rather cumbersome, but that's what the parties agreed to when they signed the contract. 
So when you review a contract, you should look through this and, and try to understand. We saw a lot of foreign jurisdictions show up during the last boom because when so-and-so contractor came from Chicago or Pittsburgh or New York, they had their standard contract, and their standard contract was to apply the law from where they were based. So if you sign a contract and that contract says you're going to resolve disputes uh, in New York under New York law, well, guess what? That's what you've agreed to. So you need to be aware of that, and if you want to change it, the place to change it is in your contract when you sign the contract. The one major exception to this rule is if you have a bond claim or a lien claim, typically those are resolved in the jurisdiction where the property is located and the law that will apply is the law of where that property is located. So you may, as a subcontractor as an example, you may sign a contract with a general contractor where the law is, venues in New York and the law is New York uh, law, but if you foreclose a lien in Dade County, if all you do is foreclose on that lien in Dade County, then you will apply Dade County law in a court located in Dade County. Um, all right, attorney's fees. Uh, people ask me all the time, they say, Alex, I understand that I need to collect this debt or have to resolve this dispute with this other party. I would like to be able to recover the money that I pay you from the other side if we win. How can we do that? There are two ways in the state of Florida to recover your legal fees. One is if you have a written agreement, and that written agreement says that the prevailing party is entitled to recover legal fees. If you have such a provision in your agreement, then the prevailing party uh, of that dispute involving the written contract will be able to recover their legal fees from the losing party. The other way that you can recover your legal fees in the state of Florida is if you sue someone for violating a statute, and that statute, a law, uh, says that the winner gets their legal fees. The two most common places that exist uh, for construction cases is if you have a lien or you make a claim on a bond. The lien statute, Chapter 713, says the prevailing party is entitled to recover their legal fees. And the bond statute, 713, as well as I think it's 627, uh, says that if you sue a payment bond surety and you prevail, you're entitled to recover your legal fees. So if you, if you bring claims on either of those two bases and you win, you should be able to recover your legal fees. Uh, plus, of course, if you sue someone for breach of a contract and that contract says that the prevailing party is entitled to recover legal fees. So we're going to talk about three very specific things. How to assert your lien rights, how to assert your bond claim rights, and then some very common traps that I see that uh, with a little bit of information you can avoid. So let's start with liens. Let me explain what it is. A lien is an encumbrance uh, on real property that you as one who improves the property can assert uh, as long as you fall into one of the classes that the statute allows uh, to have a lien. Um, Understand that lien rights exist only for work on private property. If you have work, if you work on public property, that is property owned by a municipality, state, uh, school board, you don't have lien rights. Your right is against the payment bond, and we're going to talk about that next. 
So let's talk about what the general rule is uh, for you to assert a lien. Now, so the, the first rule you need to understand is that within 45 days of your first work on the job, you need to send uh, and have the proper parties receive the notice to owners. The next rule, within 90 days of your last work on the job, you need to send, you need to record your claim of lien. So again, the next steps, within 15 days of the recording of the claim of lien, you need to send it to all interested parties. Those are the parties that are listed on the notice of commencement. That's the document that's recorded uh, in the public records that says who the owner is, who the surety is. Um, if you have a direct contract with the owner, uh, then you need to send an additional document called the contractor's final affidavit. That document needs to be sent no later than five days before you file the lawsuit to foreclose on the lien. Typically, what we recommend to clients is that if you're going to file, uh, record a lien on the project and you, are, and you have a direct contract with the owner, then at the same time you do that, you, you prepare and send a contractor's final affidavit. A contractor's final affidavit is a very simple document. It says you're the contractor, you have a contract with the owner, you're owed a certain amount of money, and these are the parties that remain unpaid. So you'd list any lien or that, that you owe money to. Within one year of the recording date of the claim of lien, you need to file a lawsuit to foreclose on the lien. That is the last point in time to keep that lien alive. There's no such thing as re-recording the lien. That doesn't exist. Um, the only way to keep that, that lien alive is to file a lawsuit to foreclose. Now we're going to go through each trade so you understand uh, how everyone fits into this category because each rule is a little different. Um, and so you know the lien law is very complicated. Every one of these rules I've just told you has an exception. At least one exception. There's usually many exceptions. So let's talk about laborers. A laborer, uh, as defined uh, for what we're going to talk about, is John Smith the Carpenter. It's not John Smith Carpentry, Inc. It's the person. He's got no company. He's out there doing work, uh, or she's doing work. They don't need to send a notice to owner. They need to record their lien within 90 days, serve a copy, uh, within 15 days of recording and file suit within a year. The legislature said that you don't have, as a laborer, you don't have to send a notice to owner. So it's possible that you may be on a job and there may be people that are owed money and you don't know about them because you didn't get a notice to owner. Next, a contractor. So we're clear, a contractor under the lien law is defined as anyone that has a contract with an owner. So it's possible that you may be an electrician, right? So your trade is an electrician. You don't think of yourself as a contractor. Well, if you have a direct contract with an owner, then you have, uh, then you're a contractor as far as the lien law is concerned. Um, we had a client who was an owner who hired a roofer directly. That roofer always dealt with uh, contractors. So when the roofer was owed money, the roofer followed the procedure of being a subcontractor. So they missed one step, and that was sending the contractor's final affidavit. They didn't do it. So my advice to my client, the owner, who was being sued by the roofer, was 
let's take this case very, very slowly. Because if we wait a year and they don't send the contractor's final affidavit, well, guess what? They have no claim on your property. And lo and behold, they didn't send the contractor's final affidavit, so we were able to uh, cancel their lien because they didn't send that one document um, because they always thought of themselves as a subcontractor, not as a contractor under the lien law. So if you have a direct contract with an owner, irrespective of your trade, you are a contractor as far as the lien, as far as the lien law is concerned. So what steps do you need to do? You don't need to send a notice to owner, but I would recommend that you do it. It's a very small, uh, there's a very insignificant cost. Usually it's 20, 30 bucks. There's lots of services that will do it for you put the information online on their forms, they'll send it out, they'll take care of all of the paperwork. Um, so you don't need to send it if you have a direct contract with the owner, but again, I, I suggest that you do. The next step is within 90 days of your last work, you need to record the claim of lien on the property. Within 15 days of the recording, you need to send a copy to all interested parties. Uh, the next step is, the contractor's final affidavit. Within five days of filing suit, you need to send this contractor's final affidavit. But again, I would suggest to you, do it at the same time that you send your lien, uh, just to get it all done at once. And then you need to file a lawsuit to foreclose on the lien within one year of the recording date of the claim of lien. As you can see, this is a recurring theme about the number of days. Uh, as a subcontractor, uh, there's one exception, which is you as a subcontractor don't have lien rights if the contract between the owner and the contractor is $2,500 or less. Obviously, that's a nearly insignificant amount. It's very, I, it's never happened to me, but you just need to know that if that exists, then you don't have a lien. Um, but that aside, the, the process that I've described to you now ad nauseum, you understand. 45 days, send a notice to owner, 90 days uh, from last work, claim of lien, uh, has to be recorded, serve a copy on all interested parties within 15 days, and then file suit within one year. Let me take a moment to explain one nuance, which is what the 45 days means. 45 days is measured from the day you first work on the job, and we're going to talk about what first work actually is a little bit later. But 45 days is uh, the day is, is the time that the owner and contractor, if, if you are a sub-sub, need to receive the actual document. So if you go to the post office and you put in the mail on the 44th day your notice to owner, it's probably going to be late because they need to get it by the 45th day. It's not when you send it, it's when they receive it. Uh, maybe it takes five days to get there. Maybe it takes eight days to get there. I don't know how long it's going to take, but if you're waiting that long, you're going to run into a problem. We typically suggest that when you execute a contract for work that requires you to send a notice to owner, that is your trigger to send your notice to owner. You understand the rule is no later than 45 days. The, you don't actually have to start the work within, uh, in order to send the notice to owner. You just can't send it later than the 45th day. So when you sign the contract, you could send the notice to owner uh, that same day. 
You can't do it before you sign the contract. So if you have a letter of intent and you haven't started working on the job, that's not enough to send a notice to owner. If you're just negotiating, that's still not enough. You need to have uh, an actual contract to do the work in order to send the notice to owner. Or you do it within 45 days of actually doing work. So you may not have a written agreement to do the work, then the earliest you can send that notice to owner would be the day you start work on the job site. Sub subcontractors or material suppliers to subcontractors. This is the last rung of the lien law. These are the this is the the lowest point on the totem pole that you can um, have lien rights. You're going to do everything that I just told you plus one other step is and that is you need to make sure that the general contractor on the job receives a copy of your notice to owner. So if you are a sub subcontractor and you send a notice to owner only to the owner and the general contractor does not receive a copy, you have no lien rights because you didn't send it to the person that also needs to get it. The logic there is that the general contractor in order to manage the job and the finances on the job needs to know everyone on the job that has lien rights. So they obviously know about everyone that they signed a contract with, but they don't know about the sub subcontractors on the job. So in order for the general contractor to know that a sub sub is on the job, in order to protect the property from liens, they need to get that notice to owner. Any questions about the lien timeframes? For those that came in late uh, from the break, this little device here helps you calculate when you need to send your notice to owner and when you need to record your claim of lien. You line up the first work date, it'll calculate the 45 days. You line up the last work date, it'll calculate the 90 days for you. Again, those are the outside dates uh, to, to do each task. Okay, so let's talk about uh, how to assert your rights against a payment bond. A payment bond exists typically in two places. One is uh, on public jobs. If the job is, if the property is owned by a municipality uh, or a state or a government agency, that job may, that project may have a payment bond. The typical threshold is that anything over $200,000 up to $400,000, the municipality has the discretion of whether to require or not require a bond. Over $400,000, the statute requires that the municipality require the, the general contractor to get a bond. So if the, if the contract let by the municipality or agency um, is over $400,000, it's supposed to have a payment bond, which means then that your recourse when you do work on that project is against the payment bond surety. There are no lien rights for doing work on municipal property. The one small exception to that rule, uh, which we saw in the last boom uh, occasionally, we're still seeing some of it now, and that is where a municipality leases property to a developer who then hires a contractor to develop the land. Maybe it's a 99-year lease. Um, maybe it's build out in a space. Uh, you, again, if the property itself is owned by a municipality, you don't have lien rights on the dirt, on the property itself, but you may have lien rights on the lease. Don't forget, the municipality leased 
the property to uh, a developer. So your lien would attach to the leasehold interest uh, of, that exists between the owner, the municipality, and the developer. So a payment bond is a uh, financial device that, is, that exists to protect those that do work on a construction project to ensure that they get paid uh, in lieu of having lien rights. I described to you on a municipal project when those bonds may come into play depending on the value of the contract of the municipality. How do you know if a bond is, exists? Uh, on a private job, a bond is supposed to be referenced in the notice of commencement. The contractor is supposed to tell you if the job is bonded. Uh, so you can pull the notice of commencement from the public records. A copy is also supposed to be posted at the job site. And there should be a little spot in the notice of commencement that says sureties. That's usually blank if there's no bond, but if there is a bond, it'll say the name of the surety, Hartford, Liberty Mutual, Westchester, some insurance company. As well, a copy of the bond is supposed to be attached and recorded with the notice of commencement. Um, on public jobs, uh, you can ask the municipality for a copy of the bond. They're supposed to give it to you. Um, so let's talk about the procedure. Uh, it's very similar, but not exact, uh, exactly like the procedure for making a claim on a piece of real estate uh, via claim of lien. Step one, you need to send a notice to contractor within 45 days of your first work on the job. This applies to those that do not have a direct contract with the bonded contractor. So let me explain. So if you have a contract with the prime contractor, and that prime contractor is the one that issued the bond, because the owners don't issue the bond, it's the contractors, then you don't need to send this notice, because the contractor obviously knows that you exist on the job because they signed a contract with you. So those that need to send this preliminary notice are those that are sub-subcontractors or material suppliers to subcontractors. Make sense? Again, the whole idea of this is notice, letting someone know that you are on the job. And if you don't sign a contract with them, then the way you tell them is with this device called a notice to contractor. Uh, that 45 days doesn't start to run until you have notice that the job is bonded. Now you can't bury your head in the sand and pretend that you don't want to know that the job is bonded, but the, the way that contractors give public notice to everyone that the job is bonded is by recording a copy of the bond. So I told you the notice of commencement will make reference to the bond, a copy should be attached. As a result, now that's public notice. So your 45 days starts to run from your first work on the job. Um, we had a case once in which it was a public job down in Homestead, our client was a sub-subcontractor, so therefore they were required to send this 45-day notice. They did not because they messed up. They came to us and their comment to me was, Alex, we screwed up, we didn't send the preliminary notice, we just finished working, we're owed $100,000. What can you do for us? But I don't think there's much you can do because we didn't send the preliminary notice. Well, they would have been correct if the contractor recorded a copy of the bond. The contractor never did. So therefore, no one knew that the job was bonded. So even though the job was done, right, everything is done at this point, 
the first thing we did is send this notice to contractor out. It's the first thing we did uh, because we learned that the job was bonded when we did some more digging. Uh, the next day we sent the notice of non-payment, which is the next step, and at the end of the day we won. So think about this. The job is done. It, it was months and months worth of work, but because the contractor didn't record a copy of the bond in the public records, that 45 days didn't start to, to tick off for my client who was a sub subcontractor. So if you do public work and you are the bonded contractor, you need to make sure that when you get that bond issued and you start work, you record a copy. Sometimes municipal work doesn't have a notice of commencement um, because it's municipal work. You still have an obligation to record a copy of the bond if you want to start that 45 days running. The next step is uh, sending a notice of non-payment. A lien is a sworn document. It has lots of information in it. A notice of non-payment is more like a letter. It needs to be sent to the contractor and surety, and in essence it says, we did work on this job, this is how much we're owed, um, and that's about it. That needs to be done within 90 days of your last work on the job. Next step is to file a lawsuit. In order to bring that lawsuit on your bond claim, you need to do it within one year of your last work on the job. Notice that we now have a difference. In the lien situation, I told you it was one year from the recording date of your claim of lien. On bonded work, it's one year from your last work. So now you have a potential spread of 90 days. I've had clients come to me and say, all right, we've waited a really long time. We've tried as much as we could to get paid. Um, we sent our notice of non-payment um, uh, more than a year ago, but we still have time and I have to give them the bad news. No, actually, you waited too long because we needed to file suit within one year of your last work, not one year from the day you send the notice of non-payment. So if there's one outside date you need to remember so that you don't get confused, remember, one year from your last work. But I'm here to tell you that if you're waiting that long to initiate collection efforts, you're, prob you're definitely waiting too long. Um, every day that goes by that you don't try to collect the debt makes it that much harder to collect the debt. Now sometimes you may have a business reason to wait and that may be a good reason, but without having that discussion of why you want to wait, waiting up to a year is usually a bad idea. So let me talk, tell you about some very specific traps to avoid. So the first is 90 days is not three months. I'm going to let that sink in for a minute, okay? Some months have more than 30 days. Some months have fewer than 30 days. So if you're counting your lien and bond rights by saying January 7th, February 7th, you're already making a mistake. Warranty work and punch list work is not last work. Uh, so if you go out as the electrician and you tighten up all the face plates on the switches, that doesn't count. Someone calls you back out to do warranty work. That doesn't count as last work. It's not always easy to tell when last work is truly last work, um, but I'll give you a couple of things that are good indications of when you've hit last work. Probably the best one is if you've submitted a pay request that's 100%. So if you've submitted a pay rack and all the way down the list, you say 100%, you are probably starting the 90 days. 
on your lien and bond rights. Because now we have a document that is probably sworn to, because you probably signed it and had a notary, that says you're done. Because you're saying, I'm 100% done, give me my money. Any time after that is probably after your last work. Now, we had a client once who was done. The 90 days passed them. And they call me and they said, Alex, I'm owed, I can't remember how much it was, I think it was 50,000 bucks. My 90 days has expired. They're calling me to do $1,000 worth of change order work because they need me to change out a door. I don't want to do it. I don't want to spend any more money. I said, actually, yeah, you do. You want to go out there. You want to get a, ch a change order signed. You want to go do the work because guess what that does? That now resets your 90 days. So you spend 1000 bucks, and now the $50,000 that you're owed is back in play with a claim on the bond. So that's what they did, and they got paid. So change order work will extend the time, uh, but understand, it's not the execution of the change order that matters, it's the actual work that matters. So in my example that I told you, he hadn't done the change order work, so he went out, he did the change order work, that's what reset the, uh, the 90 days. It wasn't the act of getting the change order signed. If he got the change order signed and he never went back out, the 90 days would not reset. Getting an inspection approved is not last work. Now, you may have to do work to get an inspection approved. That may be last work. Um, but the actual approval of an inspection is not last work. Let me give you an example. You do all your work. You leave the job site. Three weeks later, you call in for your final inspection. You show up on the job site, and you point around to everything with the inspector. He signs you off. She signs you off. And now you're done with the job. Your 90 days started to run when you finished the work, not when you called the inspector out and got approved. Um, you may receive a document called a request for sworn statement of account. It will have a warning on it in caps. You need to respond to that request in writing, under oath, via certified mail. Uh, if you receive the request via email, it's not a valid request for sworn statement of account, meaning the penalty for, for failing to respond uh, doesn't exist. However, I would encourage you to respond nonetheless to avoid two things. One, delaying uh, the likelihood of getting paid because you have nothing to hide. The information they're requesting is, you know, pretty routine. And number two, the judges that we deal with sometimes uh, in civil cases uh, are, they are, they have to deal with lots of different cases. They may have just come over from probate, may have come over from family or criminal. So the idea of trying to explain to them that no, just because it came via email doesn't mean we lose our lien rights, that, that could be an expensive argument, right? We have to write motions, uh, we have to go to court. We could spend thousands of dollars just on that issue. It would be great if we didn't even have to deal with it because even though you didn't have to, you still sent a response. Um, 
So you should keep that in mind. If there are things you can do to minimize issues that may occur in the course of a dispute, and it's easy to do now and really expensive to do later, take the easy road now uh, just to get it done. So you have this warning. Uh, you receive the request. You're supposed to receive it via certified mail in order for it to be valid. You should still respond nonetheless. When you respond, do not just print out QuickBooks and put it in an envelope and send it back. Do not print out your QuickBooks, sign it, and send it back. Um, that, those are not valid responses. You need to answer the questions that they ask of you, uh, which are typically, what work have you done? What work is left to do? What materials have you provided? What materials are left to provide, if you know? How much money have you been paid? How much money are you owed? Those are the standard six questions that they ask. You respond by, under oath to those questions. You send it back via certified mail. You can attach exhibits. You can, if you want to explain further by providing uh, you know, a printout from QuickBooks, some other documents, you can do all of that in addition to responding under oath with the information that they've asked. Amending a claim of lien. You can amend your claim of lien as many times as you want within the original 90 days. Any amendment after that will likely render your lien unenforceable. So you can record the lien on day 37, amend it on day 64, amend it on day 88, amend it on day 90. And when I say amend it, I mean change it and then re-record it. What you can't do is make any change after the 90th day. So the situation that comes up often is you record a lien for, let's just say, $100,000. The 90 days has elapsed. Someone comes to you and says, we're working it out with the owner. Uh, we want to pay you $60,000 now. We need you to amend your lien so that you can reduce it from 100 down to 40. And what they propose is for you to amend the lien. You don't want to amend the lien. What you want to do is record what's called a partial satisfaction of lien, which says uh, it's a document like a release, uh, and it will say that you have a lien recorded at OR book and page so-and-so for $100,000. In exchange for $60,000, you're reducing that lien to leave a balance of $40,000. So for, from a title perspective, you now look at both documents. You have the lien and you have a partial satisfaction, and any title agent worth their salt will understand that those two things together mean you have a lien for $40,000. What you've done is now you've reduced your lien to satisfy their request, you've gotten your $60,000 check, and you have not given up your lien rights because you would have amended it after the 90 days. I told you that you need to file suit on your lien within one year of the recording date of the claim of lien. Sometimes owners and contractors don't want to wait that long. So they may want to try to shorten that period of time. The way they shorten it is with what's called a notice of contest of lien. It's a document that they take to the clerk of court, which will, uh, the clerk will stamp it, record a copy, and mail a copy to the lien or. From the date it's recorded, you now have 60 days to file a lawsuit to foreclose on that claim of lien. So it's taken the one year and reduced it down to 60 days. If you don't file suit to foreclose on that claim of lien within the 60 days, your lien will no longer be on the property. 
So if you get a notice of contest of lien, understand that now you are, the clock is ticking, you have to do something about it, and you have to do it within 60 days. Nothing else has to happen, and at the expiration of that 60 days, if you haven't filed your own lawsuit to foreclose on the claim of lien, you will lose your lien rights. Sometimes 60 days is too long, and owners and contractors may want to reduce it even further. They can do that with what's called a 20-day summons to show cause. Unlike a notice of contest, which is mailed to you via certified mail, a notice of contest is served upon you like a lawsuit by the sheriff or a process server, and it says, you have 20 days to file suit to foreclose on your lien, and if you don't, you will lose your lien rights. Um, let me give you an example. We represented a developer who uh, had an issue with their lender, and all of the trades, about 30 of them, filed liens on the property. So they hi the client hired us to try to help them work through this situation, both with the lender and to deal with all these liens. So the first thing we did uh, was we made a strategic decision that many of the people that recorded liens did so because it was cheap and fast in order to protect their rights. But if push came to shove, they wouldn't go through the effort of hiring a lawyer. Uh, so for the 30 liens, we sent out roughly 30 20-day summons. So we sent out a blast of these uh, pleadings in order to shorten the time. And lo and behold, roughly speaking, about half of those lienors did nothing. So just by them not doing anything in one fell swoop, we've re we removed about half the liens on the property. The other half we eventually worked out uh, and settled, but those, those half that didn't respond in time, didn't go through the effort of hiring a lawyer uh, and making some effort to defend their position on their lien, lost their lien rights. Next week, we're going to answer the question, can you record a construction lien while you are still doing work on the project? Until next time, I'm Alex Barthet. Thanks for listening to the LeanZone.com podcast. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or in your favorite podcast app. For articles, videos, and forms on this and other construction topics, head over to the LeanZone.com.